0: All right, we actually had a, a talk some of you might remember um, over a year ago when we were in Jeremiah about the subject of God's wrath, but at least two or three of you asked me about this kind of in the context of hell, when after we talked about the rich man and Lazarus, and it ties together very well. It's actually an important part, I think, that we try to wrap our minds around the subject of God's wrath in the context of hellfire. Okay, so I hope most of you were here the last two weeks. We've been talking about hellfire and know kind of the position that I'm trying to take on this, and now we're going to try to relate this to God's wrath. Just a a few verses from last time. Um, I read Psalm 68, 2, and and several other verses that seem to describe God himself is the consuming fire. God is symbolized in words in the Bible as a fire. And how many times people saw God and he was like a fire. And the, the, the presence of God uh, that there seems to be such a dramatic, uh, different reaction among two groups of people coming into the very presence of God. So here in Psalm 68, two, as wax melts in front of the fire, so do the wicked perish in his presence, but the righteous are glad and rejoice in his presence. Same presence of God, okay, but it's the, the reaction in the people that are different. They are happy and shout for joy. And this one we read in Isaiah 33, that the sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling grips the godless, Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Again, this is talking about God. Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? And then we have a description of people who can. Well, he who walks righteously and speaks what is right will dwell in the very presence of the consuming fire. Okay, we talked about Lucifer in Ezekiel 28, that he walked among the stones of fire. And then later the description is that he is consumed from within by that fire. So in a certain sense, um, we can almost see heaven and hell as the same place. It's the presence of God, but it's the the type of person that is coming into God's presence that determines whether it is heaven or whether it is hell. And here's a verse I didn't read last time, but it it relates together the subject of um, hell and God's wrath. This is the third angel's message. This is one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible. Here, but the third angel, another angel, a third, followed them, crying with a loud voice. Those who worship the beast in its image and receive a mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they will also drink the wine of God's wrath. So that's what we're gonna try to um, hear during this time, try to wrap our minds around, what is that? Poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So there you have God's wrath, And this being tormented with fire and sulfur. Okay, but let me just mention one thing about that that kind of ties in with um, our, our talk from a week ago, which is notice that those who are tormented in the fire and sulfur, that it occurs in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In other words, do you imagine this happening as these people are being tormented with fire and sulfur? Are the angels standing there as well? The lamb is standing there as well. Well, here obviously we'd say, well, there is some symbolism here and we wouldn't believe that you know, in in the reality of this that Jesus will be in the form of a lamb, right? We have some symbolism here. And so I think the point here is if if we kind of take that view of fire, that the wicked here are in the presence of God and in the presence of the holy angels. God is a consuming fire. And so the, the fire here symbolizes... The, the anguish and the distress as they come into the reality of who God is, as they come into the reality of who they are. It's it's a psychological uh, form of, of torment. But how do we relate this here to God's wrath? So we said last time that uh, the best way is not to look it up in the dictionary. Okay, because here is wrath in the dictionary. Strong, stern, or fierce anger, deeply resentful indignation, ire, vengeance, or punishment, as the consequence of anger. Well now, if this is how the Bible consistently seems to be describing God's wrath, then fine, go with that. But we first wanna see how, how is God's wrath used in the Bible? Can, are there specific examples where we see God saying, I will pour out my wrath, and then we see in a real historical example, this is what happened. Okay, and if what happened fits this, then fine, let's, let's put that definition of wrath on God. And, Google, again, which is not a good way to, um, necessarily determine what you're going to believe theologically, but just put in the, the words here. What is God's wrath? And you'll come up with some variation of this. God's wrath represents his righteous indignation, imposed, oh, that's a key word, imposed punishment for sin. That'll be one of the key questions here we'll talk about. Is it imposed? The divine wrath is God's righteous anger and punishment provoked by sin. So, Uh, For me, again, a, a central question is, is God's wrath externally imposed? We come to the end of time, and God just says, that's it. And God imposes that on us. So fortunately, and I would just encourage you, the next time you read through the Bible and we think about these topics like fire, like God's wrath, just keep it in your mind as you're reading. And every time you come across it, circle it and say, okay, there it is. And then try to see, well, how did that actually play out? What is being described? And there are so many of these. I'm not going to bring them all up, but all the way back through Deuteronomy. So here's a, a good example. Deuteronomy 32, where God is speaking here and says, My anger will flame up like fire and burn everything on earth that will reach to the world below and consume the roots of the mountains. I will bring on them endless disasters and use all my arrows against them. Hey, here's a good verse for discussing the God of the Old Testament. But when you come on something like this, don't stop reading. Okay, Keep reading, because so often you read something like this and the, the explanation gets kind of unfolded. So our question is, when God's anger flames up like a fire, when he shoots all of his arrows against his rebellious people, um, what happens? So we just keep reading on a few verses. They fail to see why they were defeated. They can't understand what happened. Why were a 1,000 defeated by one and 10,000 by only two? Their Lord, their God had abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. So we see here initially God's anger, he will shoot arrows, and then the question is asked, well, why, how did it happen? And then the description, God abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. And so these words, you will find again and again and again, not just in one or two key texts, but so many times when you come on the subject of God's wrath or anger, uh, you will see God described as abandoning, giving up, forsaken, handing over, uh, that same uh, repeated theme. So we want to look for that. Um, here's another in uh, one chapter earlier in Deuteronomy 31. They will abandon me and worship the pagan gods of the land they are about to enter. When that happens, I will become angry with them. Again, what happens when God becomes angry? I will abandon them and they will be destroyed. Many terrible disasters will come upon them and then they will realize that these things are happening because I, their God, am no longer with them. So again, the description here of God's wrath is God is not with them anymore. Now, there could be some troubling thoughts about this. Why does God ever abandon Okay, so we need the historical examples to see why would God ever do that? Okay, but again, just for now to make the relationship between wrath and handing over and uh, abandoning. Okay, so here's a specific story that has to do with the Philistines where the covenant box was stolen, okay, and and we read an interesting description of this in Psalm uh, 78. Okay, the description is, they angered him with their heathen places of worship and with their idols, they made him furious, God was angry when he saw it. So he rejected his people completely. He abandoned his tent in Shiloh, the home where he had lived among us. He allowed our enemies to capture the covenant box, the symbol of his power and glory. So the the action here of God's anger, um, I think in the historical story, we could say that people pushed God away. They really wanted nothing to do with, with him. Okay, and so his choice was really to pull strings, to manipulate, or to allow them to experience separation. He abandoned. He allowed. And again, who did the punishing in this case? It was their enemies who captured the covenant box. Okay, the two captivity stories, there are just uh, many, many more examples than than I can show you here in just a few minutes. Both the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity. that this is where we see most of the use of God's wrath in the Old Testament. So this is in Hosea, where God, many times the, the wrath comes up here and God says, I will attack the people of Israel and Judah like a lion. I myself will tear them to pieces and then leave them. When I drag them off, no one will be able to save them. Okay, and you know I don't want to sugarcoat these verses. We want to you know look at these verses and have a reaction to it but then try to see why is God speaking this way. And we just read on the next verse. What happens? I will abandon my people. He just said he would drag them off. Okay, But I will abandon my people until they've suffered enough for their sins and come looking for me. Perhaps in their suffering, they will try to find me. And there's a great verse in Hosea. I don't have it here in this Bible study where God says to the people, uh, my people are as stubborn as mules. How can I treat them like lambs in a meadow? And so I think we see God here talking to stubborn mules. You know, if you just had a rebellious child, you might need to use some language and to talk in a way to really get their attention, right? So God is getting their attention. But it would seem like the reality is that God abandons, God hands over. And if we just read what happens, this is the best place, I think. Hosea 11, where God describes, he allows his people to go into Assyrian captivity. The ten northern tribes were lost forever in Assyrian captivity, okay, and this is what how God describes it how oh, how can I give you up ephraim how how can I hand you over Israel? How can I turn you into Sodom? How can I treat you like a Gomorrah? My heart recoils within me, all my compassion is kindled. I will not give vent to my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. and I think it's hard to read this and not to hear emotion, even tears in the voice of God as his people go into captivity and says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I forsake you? Same thing with the Babylonian captivity. Um, Many more verses here in Jeremiah and Ezekiel especially, but here are just a few in uh, Jeremiah 21, where God says, I will fight with you, against you, with all my might, my anger, my wrath, and my fury. I will kill everyone living in this city. So again, we want to ask the historical example that the people are still in Jerusalem. God is warning them about uh, what's going to happen. And God says specifically, I will kill everyone living in this city. So we want to ask what actually happened. This is what God said. Did God actually kill everyone living in this city? People and animals alike will die of a terrible disease. Anyone who stays in the city will be killed in war or by starvation or disease, even though here, God says, I will kill them. But then again, we just read on in this same passage. Here's what will happen. It will be given over to the king of Babylonia and he will burn it to the ground. Okay, so it's an example of God's wrath. And God here says, I will do it. But what actually happened was it was handed over to the king of Babylonia. And you just read the historical uh, account in Chronicles and Nebuchadnezzar and his army came in and they burned it to the ground, not God. Okay, so again in Jeremiah, the Lord has abandoned his people like a lion that leaves its caves. The horrors of war and the Lord's fierce anger have turned the country into the desert. Again, just to try to solidify this relationship between wrath and handing over. Okay, and again in Jeremiah 31, God told me to say to King Zedekiah, I, the Lord, will hand this city over to the king of and He will burn it down. So we know what happened. It wasn't God that lit the fire in Jerusalem. It was the Babylonians. Okay, the same description. Ezekiel lived in Babylon, okay? But this was before the, the last invasion of Jerusalem. Okay, same kind of thing. God speaking here. You will feel my anger when I turn it loose on you like a blazing fire, Again, the reality, I will hand you over to brutal men. Okay, they're the ones that lit the fire. Okay, and I mentioned that Chronicles, which just kind of tells this historical thing, this is what happened. The very end here of the second Chronicles describes who did the punishing. The king killed the young men of Judah, even in the temple. He had no mercy on anyone, young or old, man or woman, sick or healthy. God handed them all over to him. So it's such a redundant, uh, repetitive theme. Here in Lamentations, if you just want one verse that relates the two, okay? Lamentations two, verse one: The Lord in His anger has covered Zion with darkness; its heavenly splendor He has turned into ruins. On the day of His anger, He abandoned. So what I what I see. Uh, imagine happening here in the Bible, and I think we could have lots of illustrations, is a a, a progressive unfolding of human reality. In the books of Moses, uh, virtually God does everything. He punishes, he rewards. Um, He punishes to the third and fourth generation for the sins of the parents. I mean, God really does it all. But as you read on, um, there, there's a much more. It, it kind of gets teased out. You get to Ezekiel, and you find out, you know, God says very clearly, "I do not punish the children for the sins of the parents." Okay, and right there in the Ten Commandments, it says that He does. Okay, so God seems to take responsibility for everything very early on. I think again, dealing with very immature children. Um, but as things move on, we see much more when we get to Jeremiah not just God punishing for sin, but that sin itself does the punishing. Okay, you probably should make a much bigger point of this. I'm just mentioning two verses here in Jeremiah where God would say, you have brought this on yourself by abandoning the Lord your God when he led you on his way. Your own wickedness will correct you. God doesn't have to. Your own wickedness will correct you. And your unfaithful ways will punish you. You should know and see how evil and bitter it is for you if you abandon the lord your god this is really a, a much uh, an emphasis that that starts to take place later on in the old testament we don't find that in uh, the books of moses where if you leave me i will punish you and that's repeated over and over especially in deuteronomy okay so in jeremiah 4 judah you have brought this on yourself by the way you've lived and by the things you have done your sin has caused this suffering it has stabbed you through the heart so it's, it's a self-inflicted um, natural consequence rather than God needing to externally impose uh, something on his people. Okay, so that, that was just a very quick uh, God's wrath in the Old Testament. And of course, we have this in the New Testament as well. Here's just one example. In First Thessalonians, where Paul talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. And he said, in this way they have brought to completion all the sins they've always committed and now God's anger has at last come down on them. So the question is, what did Paul mean by this uh, when he was describing this? And, and fortunately, I think we have the best explanation in the whole Bible in Romans 1 about what God's wrath really is. And I think, where did Paul get this? He got it from, I think, all of those examples we just read many, many times in the Old Testament, and he put it together in such a clear way, at least to my reading, in Romans 1, where the subject is God's wrath. He said, God's anger is revealed from heaven against all the sin and evil of the people whose evil ways prevent the truth from being known. God punishes them, because what can be known about God is plain to them, for God himself made it plain. So the subject here is God's wrath. How does God punish? Okay, And... What's interesting is when you just read through this long section, which is a description, a kind of an amplification of this, Paul comes back to the same wording that we talked about again and again in the Old Testament. Let will just read this through quickly. They say they are wise, but they are fools. Instead of worshiping the immortal God, they worship images made to look like mortals or birds or animals or reptile. So God, what does he do to them? He gives the people over. Same description, abandons, forsakes, gives them over. To do the filthy thing their hearts desire. They do shameful things with each other. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They worship and serve what God has created instead of the creator himself. Because they do this, again, what actually does God do? He has given them over to shameful passions. Because those people refuse to keep in mind the true knowledge about God, again, what does he do? He has given them over. So it seems like Paul doesn't want us to miss the point here. What does God do? He Hands over. He gives up. That's the expression of God's wrath. He repeats three times. It's all from those Old Testament examples. Okay, so we come to the cross. Okay, and so the description here, reading on in Romans, which Paul would say, because of our sins, he was given over. Again, that language is very charged. Okay, and we have Jesus' words, of course. That the whole country became dark and at three o'clock... And it's just interesting, you know, Jesus spoke Aramaic, the New Testament is in Greek, so we don't actually have the the words of Jesus here, but we have this little Aramaic phrase, which, which I won't try to pronounce, but which means, my God, my God, why did you abandon me? Okay, why did Jesus choose to express it this way? I mean, it would seem almost to instill a lack of confidence here. You have God in human form saying to his father, why did you abandon me? And the one thing I, I've left out of this talk, which I think um, really should we should talk about it or consider it, this is from Psalm 22. And I think we get a really uh, an interesting expansion of this uh, if we were to actually read the psalm where this talks about. It starts out, my God, my God, why did you abandon me? So there's a meaning there. But I think Jesus is wanting us to associate what's, what is happening with the cross with all of those examples all the way through um, of God's wrath, which we've associated with abandoning, handing over. So our question is, what really happened at the cross? And how do we relate what happened at the cross to God's wrath? What happened at the cross is often used as an example of God pouring out his wrath. This is how it is um, frequently understood. Jesus took on the sins of the world. God can't look on sin, so he turned his back on Jesus. Jesus took God's wrath, which should have been poured out on us. Okay, that's a a very common way of describing it. But there are a number of, um, well, just questions I would have on this. The first is, um, is sin a quantity? You know, can you put sin on a table and move it from one place to another? Is it something you can hold in your hand? Can you hit it with a hammer? Um, What is the essence of sin? And can you transfer sin? Um, The problem here is God can't look on sin, so he turned his back on Jesus. Well, I mean, don't we see God looking on sin all the way through the Bible? I mean, the the intimate relationship God had with sinners all the way through. And of course, the problem here is um, do we want to split the Trinity up in any way, Father and Son? Uh, Were they broken apart at the cross? And certainly if we take this position that uh, God's wrath, which should have been poured out on us, was poured out on Jesus. Um, it would leave an, uh, certainly I think that the meaning, at least the only way I could understand it is that God's wrath is externally imposed as a punishment for sin. and it is a, a legal balancing of the book. We deserve a certain amount of punishment. Jesus took that punishment. Someone had to be punished. and so we are now in good legal standing. Hey, there is value in, in understanding the legal language that's used in the model. But is, is this the reality of what's happening at the cross? Well, let me give some uh, examples. Again, what does God's wrath mean in the Bible? In all those examples that we've given, we've said God's wrath is God respecting the choice of his rebellious children by giving them up, handing them over, abandoning them to their free will choice. That, that's the, the redundant uh, evidence And in every case, the examples I gave, the consequences were natural, not imposed. It was a result of separation from God. And then literally all hell broke loose and they went into captivity and they were killed and kings came and and, uh, burned the city down. And example over example, it was a result of not being with God, of abandoning God and everything falling apart. Okay, so what happened at the cross? Um, Isaiah 53, I find just very interesting as a prophetic psalm about the cross. Uh, It's an amazing passage here that he was hated and rejected. His life was filled with sorrow and terrible suffering. No one wanted to look at him. We despised him and said he's a nobody. He suffered and endured great pain for us. And I just find this very interesting. But we thought his suffering was punishment from God. Isn't that usually how the cross is interpreted? It was punishment from God. Well, we have thought that, but is that really the reality? But no, he was wounded and crushed because of or by our sins. By taking our punishment, he made us completely well. So what did the punishing at the cross? Uh, This passage to me would indicate that sin, however we define that intrinsically, did the punishing rather than something from above, that the Father punishing Uh, Jesus, in our place. That there was an intrinsic, uh, a natural consequence. I think we can take this all the way back to the tree. Remember, God said, you must not eat the fruit of that tree. If you do, you will die the same day. Okay, and the serpent comes along and says, that's not true, you will not die. And as I've usually talked about this, you know, in the Bible study, it's been, well, God, or Satan claimed that God was a liar. He was breaking down trust between Adam and Eve. But what do you think about it, the claim here? God says, you rebel, eat the fruit, you will die the same day. Satan says, that's not true. You won't die. Okay, how, how I had usually read this, just, you know, translated in my mind, um, is that this is really saying here that God is saying, you know what, if you rebel against me, uh, I will kill you. Okay, of course that's not exactly what God said, but what is the meaning? If, you know, if you rebel, does God do something? And interesting, they didn't die the same day. They lived a thousand years. Okay, so is the claim of Satan here, that's not true, you will not die, is that true? So it kind of gets back to an important definition. What actually is sin? Okay, here's our key text for sin, which I like the Good News Bible, but this is a really bad translation of this verse. Sin is a breaking of the law. And then in our minds, we think of sin as lying, stealing, murder. And of course, that's that's sinful behavior. But does that really get to the root of what sin is? And what this really says here is sin is anomia, if we want to use the Greek here. Nomia is law, so anomia is literally lawlessness. That would be a good... Uh, translation here. And so many of your uh, versions will just say it this way, which is really good. Sin is lawlessness. okay? And if we use a heretical paraphrase like the message, uh, sin is a major disruption of God's order. But that actually, I think, gets to a pretty good definition. Sin is rebelling against God. Sin is a rebellious choice um, to, to separate ourselves from God. Here's something we should put with it here in Romans 14. Anything that is not based on faith or trust is sin. So the these sinful behaviors, lying, murdering, all of those things, come from something much deeper. They spring from rebellion in our hearts and minds against God. Okay, It is rebelliousness against God. And then all of the uh, outward manifestations of sin become very obvious. So sin is rebelliousness. Sin is not trusting in God. And so, Jesus, we wouldn't say he was a rebel. Um, We wouldn't say that he didn't trust God. Okay? But for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. He was treated as a rebel, though he was not a rebel. And I think it is just so important to our understanding of things that we see that, you know, we look forward perhaps to the. Uh, the destruction of the wicked, however you want to um, term that, that we see God not as the executioner, but I think at the cross we really see this is the intrinsic effect of rebellion against God. Look at all the examples in the Old Testament. Look at the cross and you see that sin does its own punishing. So we, we talked about these two verses last time and we compared them. That Jesus, here in one parable, he will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth And in another, they will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think these two relate very much. In one, here you come into the fiery presence of God. You see God for who he is. You see yourself as you are. Okay, There's psychological stress. And thrown out into the outer darkness. And so I think, um, as I try to understand this, that there are people who just do not like God for who he is, and do not want to live with a God who's like Jesus. And that's hard to hard to wrap our minds around, anyone who wouldn't like that. But it's also hard for me to understand how Jesus could heal people, you know, heals a man with a withered hand and everyone's really upset about it. Uh, How could heal Lazarus and they leave the tomb wanting to plot how to destroy Jesus. How could anyone not like someone who heals lepers and does all of those things? But most of the people were very offended by the miracles of Jesus. I don't understand that, but he didn't fit their picture of who God was, and so never mind the miracle, they were just able to uh, dismiss all of that out of hand. Some people truly do not like a God who is as Jesus revealed him to be. Okay, So um, I think the, the point here, um, again, intrinsic or imposed. I just like the words here, this quote. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin." Now, that's quite the thought. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin, yet that's the traditional model. Okay, here's the reality. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner. Again, that would be a more of a natural process. It works in him, a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, Men separate themselves from god that 's the whole uh, abandoning process they choose to abandon themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death so i don 't think we see that fully i mean it 's almost kind of like we 're on life support okay, here that God is you know mercifully you know patiently uh, waiting here for all of us. but I think if we really want to see what does it look like to be disconnected from God. Uh, I think the cross is, is our best example of that. So um, we have lots of examples we can just use from a medical analogy, which I find quite helpful. Let's consider God as like a heavenly physician. Many times he's described that way. All right. So how do physicians deal with rebellious patients? I'm going we'll give lots of examples here. You have a patient who's having all kinds of health problems from smoking. Okay, you send the patient to a stop-smoking class, you try the patch, you counsel, all kinds of things. Your patient won't stop smoking. Okay, now your patient develops lung cancer. Now, you as a physician, you did everything you could to prevent that, but the result was a natural consequence of persisting in a rebellious um, behavior. Okay, you didn't have to do something to make sure your patient was affected in a negative way from lung cancer. Okay, you did everything you could to prevent it, but it was a natural consequence intrinsic. and I always like this example of uh, not brushing your teeth. okay If you don't brush your teeth, dentists do not sneak into your home in the middle of the night and put cavities in there, right? You get cavities from not brushing. okay It's, it's a natural consequence. it's intrinsic. it's not externally imposed. Um, if you decide to go a week or two, three weeks and not study, okay. Uh, we don't have monitors that check how many hours you were studying. And if we find out that you don't study enough hours, then we mix up and put the wrong answer on your test to make sure you get a bad grade uh, for not studying. No, you don't do well in the test because you didn't study. It's a natural consequence. Okay, If you step off a cliff, God does not need to send his angels down to make sure that the laws of gravity are going to work You know, you do that, there's a natural consequence, you fall and you'll hurt yourself. Okay, That's, I think, as we try to understand what happens, what actually leads to the ultimate death, um, that there's a natural consequence of separation from God, not God needing to execute. Okay, so if we look at this again, when God's warning here, if you rebel, what will happen? Translation is often, do not rebel against me. If you do, I will kill you or throw you into hellfire for all of eternity. Could we read it this way? Do not rebel against me. If you do, I will do everything to win you back, including dying on a cross. But if I can't, I will respect your choice to leave me and die. Okay, Um, That's more what I'm trying to say here. So the point is, sin itself pays the wage. Okay, We make God out to be the one that pays the wage. No, sin pays the wage death, our rebelliousness, our distrust of God, that's what does the punishing. Yeah, I gave this example last year, but uh, I just think it, it fits so well. The VA uh, alcoholism is a big problem. And so I see every week uh, a veteran that has some complication from alcoholism. And uh, I saw a patient not too long ago that had every alcoholic complication that there is for, in terms of neurologic. So I think I saw him initially for seizures, And we had him in the hospital. We did a big workup, referred him to the alcohol treatment unit, had a long talk about the damaging effects of alcohol. Okay, And he didn't really participate, and he went right back to his old behavior. Then he developed peripheral neuropathy, very painful, burning feet. Had another long talk. His family came with him at that time. We all talked about what's going on with alcohol. Referred him back to the alcohol treatment unit. He left after two days. Went right back to drinking lots and lots of vodka. Okay. Then finally he developed a gait ataxia because chronic alcoholism damages the cerebellum. And he came in, now he couldn't walk well from a combination of peripheral neuropathy and from uh, cerebellar uh, atrophy. And then what was really sad is when I finally saw him uh, at least three years after this initial presentation, uh, now he has dementia okay, from a horrible alcohol abuse. So, um, and... Just to remind you in neurology, here's some cerebellar atrophy. And if you see that in a focal area, then you'd want to think about chronic alcoholism. So uh, again, from a physician point of view here, you do everything you can. Uh, Talking with the family, referring to alcohol treatment unit, you explain things, but the one thing you don't do is, you don't tie patients down. I mean, you can't override their free will choice to continue in a destructive behavior. So it's kind of like this, this verse in Jeremiah 34, which is rather startling. God says, very well then, I will give you freedom, the freedom to die by war, disease, and starvation. Okay, It's a sad verse, but I think God's respect for our freedom is it has to be there. Love and freedom have to be in a one-to-one relationship. If God takes away freedom, uh, he takes away love as well. So uh, God refuses to become the puppet master in our lives. So finally, last passage here. I would like to say that as Jesus said, my God, my God, how can you abandon me? How can you give me up? That I think we have lots of scriptural evidence to say that the words of the father in response, the attitude of the father in response are the words here in Hosea. How, oh, how can I give you up, my son? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me. All my compassion is kindled. And I would like to put this verse You know, with any time God loses one of his children, uh, there's sadness, there's uh, really uh, tears in the voice of God any time he loses uh, any one of his children. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you again for, on a subject like this, uh, giving us so much to think about. Help us to come to a closer reality of who you are um, in every instance of life, and especially as we look forward to Uh, what will happen someday that uh, we can see the relationship between you, Father and Son, and that we see Jesus uh, being one and the same in heart, mind, and character as the Father. Amen.